2: Hello and welcome to The Paritest, the political podcast that asks what
3: Labour should do to win and change
2: Britain for the better. I'm Aisha Hazarika.
3: And I'm Sam Friedman. If Labour wins the next general election, they will need to restore Britain's standing and influence in the world. What should their approach to foreign policy be and how might it be impacted if Donald Trump returns to the White House? <laughs>
2: Shortly, we'll be joined by the former Labour Foreign Secretary Jack Straw, Olivia O'Sullivan, Director of the UK in the World Programme at Chatham House, and Matthew McGregor, the CEO of the political activism organisation 38 Degrees and a former campaign aide to President
3: Obama. So, been another busy week in politics Probably the biggest thing was the immigration announcements that we had on Monday, where sort of almost out of nowhere, after very high levels of net migration were were announced last week, the government decided on quite a drastic package of, of measures to reduce that number. Uh, and it felt very rushed uh, list of things that they'd put together, but potentially with very serious consequences, for instance, not allowing care workers to bring independence into the country, not allowing them to bring their families into the countries if they come to work here, which can have a very serious effect on our care system and the NHS. And perhaps most controversially, not allowing people to bring in a spouse from another country or, or bring in some a partner from another country to marry. Um, If they uh, are earning less than £38,700, which 70 plus percent of the population does earn less than. So uh, really quite aggressive package. And and it came a bit out of the blue, I think.
2: Yeah, it definitely had very strong vibes of something must be done immediately. You just get the feeling that no proper due diligence has been done really scoping out the consequences of this, particularly two areas which we really need for our social infrastructure is the health service and the social care um, service. And they're really going to be hampered by by this. So one sort of feels that there is such a kind of panicky, scorched earth approach at the moment. I'm going to do a but here. I think they're again chasing the headlines. And I think to some people, the headlines on this will not sound that bad like i just remember growing up with conversations with my mom and dad where they said that when they first kind of came here it was very very difficult to bring you know a, a partner or a family over so i think if you're my age and you've grown up in an immigrant family you've always had at the at the back of your mind it was always really really difficult to, to bring your mm. family here so i think that will appeal to some people who will say well, you know, if you're coming over to study or you're coming over to work, then that should just be you. So I think they'll be hoping that those kind of headlines will, will carry them forward, even though there's there's been no thinking about the consequence. But I think the only thing they care about really, you know, there's this thing, you know, virtue signaling. I think they're very into their vice signaling at the mm-hmm. moment. And, you know, we're just going to sound the toughest all of this. Interestingly, I don't think Labour will reverse a lot of this.
3: Well, they they haven't said that they object to it. They've talked a bit about phasing and some of the smaller issues around it, but they haven't actually objected to the to the wider package. And there are elements of the package that I would agree with as well. Um, the the sort of wage at which you could bring someone into the country had dropped pretty low, um, and we you, know, you should want a higher skilled migration on the whole. But there are those elements of the package that just don't feel thought through at all and feel like they might end up backfiring. You know, the fact that you know, if you were a nurse coming into into this country, you could. bring your family with you still because that that is exempt under this new package but if you're a british nurse earning thirty thousand pounds you couldn't bring in a partner. from little things like that, which just don't make any sense once you start to sort of dig it's into the like detail. It's almost like it's made up
2: really quickly. Well, it, it was. <laughs> right, you
3: know, always, even a few days later, all we have is a single press release from the Home Office. It, you know, it really shabbily done, especially when it has this much effect on people's lives. So, there does feel there's some big political risk in it, as well as, as you say, uh, a very clear political incentive to try and deal with this issue. It, it also feels like, you know, when you look at the polling, the group that cares about this tend to be very kind of socially authoritarian, attracted to reform. Yeah. Um, it, I, I think even from political point of view that ramping up the salience of this issue so much is actually giving reform a platform and, and not helping the Conservatives.
2: I totally, totally agree with you. It's almost like they're panicking in a room saying, let's do something before Nigel Farage comes out of the jungle. Mm. Because after he, you know, what are the two things that he's missed while he's been in the jungle? He's missed those record high figures mm. of legal migration. Mm. And now they've rushed out this this package of, of measures. But I think it is going to be really interesting to see how reform responds to this, And it's going to be so interesting. I mean, it's going to be like, let's be honest, slightly sickening, but it's going to be fascinating to see what Nigel Farage says about all of this when he comes out And they're the still insisting
3: they're going to run in every seat, which they didn't last time when they were the Brexit party. And if they do that, even if they only get 3 4% of the vote, and they could get quite a bit more than that, will cost the Tories dozens and dozens of seats um, because they'll take their vote almost entirely from the Tories. So it is a really important factor in, 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 in the election. Starmer also caused some controversy
2: this mm. week because he wrote uh, a piece for the Sunday Telegraph and he uh, dropped in the T-word, which always makes people completely the the (laughs) T-bomb, Margaret Thatcher. He sort of, it was written up that he praised her. He didn't quite praise her. He, He said that... Did he say that he admired her as somebody who'd changed Britain? Yes,
3: he said she was effective at changing Britain, which I think it's fair to say she was. She was very effective at changing Britain. He mentioned three prime ministers. He mentioned Attlee, Thatcher and Blair, who are usually seen as being the three most uh, impactful uh, prime ministers, whether you agree with what they did or not. And I think the point he was trying to make is you need to sort of be at that level of, of impact to get us out of the hole that we're in, which again, I think is fair enough. I think that they... John McTernan, who's been on our show before, he wrote a piece of saying they're getting a bit obsessed with swing voters. And swing voters now are actually really Tory voters. Labour have got so much of the vote and the Tory vote has shrunk to such a small amount that when you're focus grouping swing voters, you're really focus grouping people who are quite right wing.
2: Like probably more reformy now. Yeah,
3: and so so they're almost getting obsessed with trying to win over that group. And there is a bit of a risk that their language goes too far. So today we're going to move away from all the bleakness of British politics towards the cheery, up sunlit uplands of foreign policy, where we've got Ukraine and Israel-Gaza and possibility of China invading Taiwan and all of this sort of joy to talk about. So we look forward to chatting through that with our guests.
2: Today, we ask if a future Labour government could restore Britain's standing and influence in the world. We start by talking with Labour's former Foreign Secretary from 2001 to 2006, Jack Straw. And somebody I actually... Oh Jack, you were one of my first bosses when I was a civil servant.
4: Uh, it's true. You, I were um, one of a, uh, a group of extremely good uh, civil service press officers uh, when I became Home Secretary in 1997. So I've watched your career. And you also very loyal to civil service ethics when uh, you were working as a civil servant, because I had no idea of your political opinions. But I was delighted to discover that uh, uh, you were as committed uh, to the uh, way, the truth and the light, uh, as I am and many others are.
2: So, Jack, as a former Foreign Secretary, do you agree that Britain's standing and influence in the world is diminished from from when you were in office.
4: Uh, yes, I do, but it, but it's, this is not a partisan point. Um, I think the position in which Britain has found itself, as a consequence of Brexit, uh, but then of the chaos of Johnson, the turnover of prime ministers, the turnover of foreign secretaries—five of each. Uh, in the space of seven years, extraordinary. And the inadequate strategy, to put it in its mildest, means that when foreign policy history of this period comes to be written, historians will say, well, there was a, a, a quite a long period when administrations of both colours uh, actually had quite significant standing in the world. And that was true for Margaret Thatcher. It was true, for, in, actually, for John Major, because... He was uh, took a significant role uh, in the uh, Gulf, first Gulf War in 19, 1991. True for Tony Blair and for Gordon Brown. And in, in fairness, for David Cameron and f- when William Hague uh, was Foreign Secretary. But post the Brexit referendum, we have gratuitously lost uh, influence. Now, can we get it back? Yes, I think we can.
3: On, on the point about the EU given that labor said they don't want to rejoin either the eu or the single market how would you go about building those bridges again what what is possible uh, outside of the formal structures of the eu
4: a great deal i mean there's a real appetite uh, amongst uh, eu members and other european states for good relations with the uk which i mean still carries a, a great deal of respect we are permanent members of the Security Council. Uh, We are still a large economy. We've got uh, some world-beating universities. We're a decent country to live in. Uh, We were pioneers of of many of the international conventions which uh, make life uh, worth living. So there's a huge amount we can talk about. But one of the absolute fundamentals uh, about foreign policy is that if, if you're going to talk to other countries you've got to understand where they're coming from and that where they're coming from, by definition, won't be where you're coming from. I mean, a a very actually good example is the issue of the Parthenon marbles. Now, the issue of the Elgin or Parthenon marbles was not something that was ever talked about in a pub in Blackburn, my former constituency, or as far as I know, anywhere else. It's not on people's lips, but it's a real issue in Greece. Now, okay, we have our view, but what you have to understand is that there'll be plenty of issues like this where there is salience to us is tiny. Salience to the person across the table and the country across the table is very large. You've got to understand that and certainly not insult um, Mm. foreign leaders as uh, Mr. Sunak did uh, by saying that they can't talk about this issue when And what was absolutely absurd about that was that even if Mr Sunak had entered into Trappist vows, not to say a word in a meeting about that, the moment he got out, he was going to be asked about it. It would be top Mm -hmm. of the list of questions by the journalists. So, I mean, that's really, really important. Understanding the history, different perspective of other countries and even more important where you're dealing with uh, potential adversaries.
3: It was a very odd um, incident, but it goes to sort of a question I wanted to ask you about the relative role of the prime minister and the foreign secretary, because it seems that uh, over quite a long period of time, uh, we've And certainly it's accelerated in the last few years that the, the role of the foreign secretary has almost been downgraded. You know, when, when Boris Johnson was given it, it was called a gilded cage. Failed to hold him, but it was called a gilded cage. Um, that doesn't have much responsibility anymore. And actually, all the important decisions are taken by the prime minister. Uh, you know, in a way, it's odd that Sunak was even getting involved with the, with the marbles dispute. D- do you think that's a fair reflection of how the roles changed?
4: As a matter of fact, I mean, this is not, you know, obviously a question that any foreign secretary has to really uh, put up with. Uh, are, are you just a kind of lick spittle for uh, your boss uh, across the street in number 10? The answer to that is that all prime ministers in all ages uh, have uh, t- uh, taken a, a great interest in foreign policy. And the more acute a foreign policy crisis, the more crucially that it involves putting our troops in harm's way, the more that is, as it were, the centre of discussion and power will shift across Downing Street from the Foreign Office uh, headquarters to number 10. Um, that doesn't, however, mean that there are plenty, plenty of opportunities and, and indeed responsibilities on a Foreign Secretary to develop themselves and to make a, a distinctive contribution. I mean, people will say of Tony Blair, who was very active on the foreign policy front. Well, he was for good reasons, because we were putting troops in harm's way. And in our constitution, as it were, the prime minister is the one who's commander in chief of the armed forces, obviously not the foreign secretary, although you are involved in uh, those decisions. But if you take the issue of Iran, now, this is a really big dossier. We weren't uh, going to uh, take military action against Iran. Indeed, I pretty famously uh, ruled that out very publicly. Crazy for that, that to be contemplated, as some of the neocons were. But it, we had a, a, a sort of feelers from the then relatively moderate regime of uh, Hatami. And with my German and French counterparts, the three of us got together and worked out what became the E3 initiative. On that, Tony just he wanted to know what I was doing, but he left me to it.
3: But I suppose since you've left and since the current government have been in power, that there's been an increase in the national security architecture within number 10. So there has been a sort of another shift of almost of control to a national security yeah. advisor sitting in number 10 and a, and a national security sort of council sitting there. Do you think that's made any difference or is it still dependent on the individuals, really?
4: It depends, it depends on the individuals. I mean, I think the, uh, Nash- the National Security Council, which David Cameron got going, was a very good initiative and I wish that it had been there in the run-up to uh, the Iraq war. All the, that architecture has done is formalized, a point I was making earlier, which is that if there's a prospect of putting troops in armed, arms way, or, for example, uh, providing military assistance to the Ukraine, then, of course, the balance, if you like, of power, of influence, will shift from the Foreign Office to Downing Street. But I say that was, it was ever thus.
2: Jack, let's now turn to the possibility of Keir Starmer becoming Prime Minister. And according to, to the polls, there's there's a good chance that that looks possible. What do you think Keir Starmer will be like on the, the world stage? And how do you think Labour should begin to approach its sort of foreign policy platform? Because we often feel foreign policy is much more of a sort of tricky issue for for the for a Labour prime minister than it is for a Conservative prime minister.
4: I think he'd be well re- regarded because he's obviously solid. He's got a clear strategy. He dominates his own party and so on. And I think the same is true, and I've seen him operate, for David Lammy, the shadow foreign secretary, who I guess will be appointed as foreign secretary. I just certainly don't think that it would be a good idea for Keir or for David to have a kind of roll of, of, of drums and say, this is what we're going to do, because foreign policy is not like that. I mean, it's, you, you can have a, you, and you need a very clear program in domestic departments, uh, as, for example, I, uh, Isha, that I and the party had when I went into. The Home Office, we'd spent three years working in detail on what we were going to do. And that was the agenda. Foreign policy, you're not in control, there's a really big difference. In the Foreign Office, you're making decisions about how you're positioned, but you are not the ultimate decision maker because they depend on forces which are quite beyond your control. You're trying to influence them.
2: And so one of the things that I think the Labour Party finds very difficult about the foreign policy area is that there's there's quite a split within the party between clearly the sort of doves and and the hawks and there has been a lot of talk and at one point Emily Thornberry talked about this you know about trying to have a a different kind of foreign policy uh, an ethical foreign policy under um, a Labour administration is that possible, Jack, or is that just naive when when you look at all the challenges facing Britain right now?
4: Well, no one's suggesting that we should have a, a foreign policy which is uh, unethical, but the diff- there's a real difficulty with the label uh, ethical foreign policy. And if, if Robin Cook, who was a good friend of mine, but if he'd ever asked me whether he should have a great display with ethical foreign policy written on... Uh, display boards and it's kind of a drumbeat. If, if that was a good idea, I would have said no, because foreign policy involves loads of really difficult compromises and areas of moral hazard. And don't forget the, the foreign secretary is literally, and not the prime minister, the person who's responsible for the operations of uh, GCHQ uh, and of the uh, secret intelligence service, MI6. But it's muck on nettles often, and by the time I became foreign secretary, I don't think Robin uh, anybody really was talking about an uh, ethical foreign policy, and I avoided uh, the phrase like the plague, not because I was unethical. It's the same as when people in the party stand up and say they want to take a principled stand. I start feeling for my wallet because what they're claiming there is somehow they're better than others, and it's not something mm. uh, something which I subscribe to.
2: And one of the most contentious areas of foreign policy, of course, was was Iraq. And there are many people who didn't think that was uh, particularly um, ethical. In fact, a, a young Keir Starmer 20 years ago wrote um, an article criticising Tony Blair at, at the time for um, going ahead and, and supporting uh, the Americans over Iraq. How much of a shadow do you think Iraq... Casts across the Labour Party and will cast a shadow for, for an incoming Labour government.
4: Well, it, I think it does cast a shadow. Had we known then what we came to know, we would not have taken part in that military action. Indeed, I don't think the United States would have launched it either. But there we are. I mean, the, and so I was part of that error. I mean, CARE is in the fortunate position that the decision on the Iraq war was taken twelve years. Before he went in, so he's very detached uh, from it, and so indeed are all the other key people who will be the major players in the Labour cabinet. What it has done is, is I think, raised the bar for intervention by uh, the British military, and that probably is probably not a bad thing either.
3: I-, I wanted to sort of go go sort of forward to the challenges that that Dahmer and David Lammy are going to face. You mentioned the prospect of a President Trump. We obviously don't know if that's going to happen, but it's certainly very plausible that it will happen. How does a Labour prime minister in particular deal with an American president having a relationship with an American president, because you've got to have a relationship with America, that who is so unpopular in Britain and particularly with progressives in Britain?
4: Well, he's unpopular too, let me say, with I think is, the vast majority of, yes, of, of natural conservative <laughs> voters. I mean. It's, very much a, uh, an American phenomenon. Uh, support for President Trump. Yeah, how do you deal with it? With difficulty. But the crucial thing is, we have to have a relationship with them, and you, and you need to bear in mind that leaders, and this is not just exclusive to, to a President Trump, have large egos. I mean, that's one of the, the ways they manage to use their elbows in order to become uh, the leader, uh, and they can be incredibly sensitive. You know, they're really, really thin-skinned. So you just have to take account of that. And we've just got to sort of bite our tongue and use another cliche and grin and bury it. But the relationship with the US is really, really important. Bear in mind, there will be loads of people in the Pentagon, uh, in the State Department, at Langley, in the CIA headquarters, and then in lots of domestic departments. There'll be people getting on with their jobs. And and, and crucially, there'll be have to be negotiations with Congress, because Congress is, is much more hands on, the Senate in terms of foreign policy and the House of Representatives in terms of domestic policy. Any sensible uh, British government needs to work those accounts as well as uh, that of the White House.
3: And there are lots of, sort of global risks that come with the prospect of a President Trump. I mean, One of the big ones is around Ukraine, obviously. It, he's been very unclear about his policy on Ukraine, other than saying he could end it in 24 hours, which seems unlikely. And... Um, and we're already seeing with the Republican Party in Congress, this sort of reluctance to, to carry on funding the Ukraine war. How does Britain manage in a world in which American support for Ukraine drops away significantly?
4: Um, with difficulty, but I don't, I mean, one of the ironies about the situation inside the, Re- the Republican Party is that were there a vote allowed within the House of Representatives, there'd be an overwhelming majority in favor of providing the money uh, to the Ukraine. It's only, I mean, I say only, but it is because the speaker, who's one of the the far out right-wingers who's there, has has blocked that going on on the agenda. Now, the challenge for uh, Prime Minister Starmer, Foreign Secretary Lammy, is to sort of try and get inside the system, inside the Republican Party, on the hill. And you can influence them. I mean, it's hard going, but you can. Just explain to them the damage that would be done if we were suddenly to remove support for the Ukraine. By we, I mean the West. The biggest loser from that over time would would be the United States as well.
2: And Jack, let's now turn to um, next to Ukraine, the the most sort of pressing foreign policy issue at the moment. And that, of course, is the Israel-Hamas conflict at the moment. How do you think Keir Starmer has handled it? He has come under some criticism. There has been a, a bit of a rebellion within his own party. A number of MPs uh, didn't vote with, with the whip. How do you think he's handled it? And how do you think the Labour Party should navigate this issue? Because it will, let's be honest, only get worse from here on in.
4: I think Keir has shown a very significant fortitude in handling this issue. And I think what he's, he sought to do is to say, look, this is how I would behave were we in government. So this is how I am going to behave. So people understand uh, that uh, although, in a sense, choices are easier in opposition, I'm going to make uh, the difficult choices. There's a dilemma. On the one hand, you have got uh, the uh, Israeli Defense Force now going in for a pretty indiscriminate killing of. Uh, Civilians who have nothing whatever to do uh, with Hamas, and how could they be? So many of them are children. On the other hand, you've got a Hamas, part of which has a, a kind of death cult about it. There, there is a very significant split inside Hamas with, between those who actually want to think think that this this is kind of dead end, which it is. For, I mean, literally dead end uh, for many of them, uh, and those who want to carry on with. this this kind of jihadist fight, regardless of the uh, casualties that uh, happen on their own side. So navigating that is difficult. However, if I were there, uh, what I'd be doing is talking to the Americans and other European foreign ministers about a daymarsh on the Israelis and saying, look, whatever we may or may not understand about where you've got to now, there has to be a very, very significant pause or ceasefire and a a change in your tactics. And I'm in touch with um, quite a number of of former IDF people in Israel who loyally have served and continue to serve their country, but who profoundly disagree with the tactics which are adopted by Netanyahu and also the tactics of the IDF. And as one uh, former IDF officer was putting to me the other day, what's not understood I think, properly elsewhere, is that, as he put it, in Israel, uh, the death of civilians is actually of a lower order than the death of service personnel. And so the IDF goes out of its way to minimise casualties to its own military personnel. But the consequence of that is it uses completely disproportionate air power and artillery, to try and soften, in the word uh, the words they use, uh, the targets before they then move uh, in at an infantry level. And it's that mm. doctrine, which is very embedded in the IDF, which I think lies at the root of the disproportionate levels of killing uh, that are going on. Now that, we have to have a, a British foreign policy and foreign, foreign secretary uh, should be actually f- getting the Israelis to face up to this and say, look, even if we were to understand exactly what you want to do. Yeah, In military terms, this is not well, not the way to do it.
3: Just a final question. Can you give us a sense of how different the messages to Israel might be behind the scenes from Biden's people, from, from uh, the, our, our government's people? How strongly do you think they'll be pushing them on some of these issues that you've mentioned, uh, but not in public?
4: Oh, I think they'll be pushing them very strongly. I mean, I'm quite clear that uh, Jake Sullivan, who's the National Security Advisor to Joe Biden and the U.S. Secretary of State, Blinken, and I hope our people too, but that may be too much tape of, of, of this government, but certainly of a Starmer and Lammy foreign policy. One of the, th- the points about foreign policy, you have to build up relationships with people, I mean, not least, say, with people you, who are not your natural bedfellows, As, I, at least so they trust you when you say to them, look, this is not something I'm going to say outside this room, but here's the position.
2: Well, Jack, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time.
4: Thank you very much. And happy Christmas.
3: Listening to that was the director of Chatham House's UK in the World programme, Olivia O'Sullivan. Hello, Olivia.
0: Hello, thank you for having me. And we're
2: also joined by the CEO of the activist organisation 38 Degrees, Matthew McGregor. Matthew was also a campaign aide to President Obama during his 2012 election campaign. Matthew, hello.
1: Hello, thank you for having me.
3: So, uh, Olivia, Chatham House uh, is, uh, is one of our most prestigious uh, uh, and oldest think tanks uh, on foreign policy. My dad was working there when I was born, which <laughs> gives a good sense of how, how old it is. Tell us a bit about what you do there and what the UK in the World programme is.
0: Yeah, sure. So we are quite a small programme in Chatham House. As you alluded to, Chatham House is um, more than 100 years old. It has a very big programme focused on Africa, on Russia, on the US and the Americas. It has all these programmes that focus on different regions. It has programmes that focus on different themes. It has often published reports on UK foreign policy, but it has not really had a programme focused on the UK until quite recently. So we're a small team, but we think about the UK's foreign relations in a changing world. And we're obviously aware these questions are especially acute post-Brexit with the UK outside of kind of major geopolitical blocks.
3: And Matthew, tell us a bit about what you do at the moment, but also what you did uh, for President Obama in 2012 uh, and and subsequently with the Democrats.
1: Yeah, I run a a campaign organization, 38 Degrees. We're a movement of almost a million people with supporters in every single constituency of the country. Uh, We're funded by our supporters. Uh, We have donors in every single constituency. And they're people who take uh, time out of busy days to do small things add up, sign petitions, write to their MPs. We've been uh, supporting the COVID-bereaved families outside the public inquiry today to raise awareness about the mistakes that were made during the pandemic. And that kind of movement building and mobilization of lots and lots of people is pretty similar to what we tried to do on the Obama campaign. Very different circumstances, of course. My role personally on the Obama campaign was to lead digital rapid response. So really what when you break it down, that means that my team was in, responsible for kind of trying to beat Mitt Romney up every day um, online. You did that pretty um, funny, yes. Yeah, he's kind of, you know, yeah. he's kind of cuddly Mitt Romney nowadays, but uh, I think that's relative to the relative rightward to shift <laughs> of the Republican Party, but uh, a very severely conservative, wrong for America. Yeah, I'm getting back into the line yeah. straight away. Um, <laughs> but that was, that was my job uh, over 14 months uh, working in Chicago, a very, a very good year it was.
3: And sort of looking forward to to the U.S. election next year, we talked to Jack a bit a bit about um, the prospect of a President Trump. Before we get into the ramifications of what that would mean, given your your experience of American politics, how likely do you think President Trump is where we stand sort of a year out?
1: Well, the polls suggest that uh, he's currently ahead, but um, I actually looked up this morning before uh, coming here uh, some of the headlines from this time in the cycle in 2011. So December 2011, President Obama was behind in the polls then, Mm. uh, in a very similar way to the way that Joe Biden is now. Some headlines, Obama hits all-time low, according to NBC, Wall Street Journal poll, Harvard poll predicts uh, Obama loss, Uh, new poll, Obama trails in swing states. I think that at this point in the cycle, the polls reflect people's perception of satisfaction, dissatisfaction. And the economy in 2011 and now is still uh, tough going. The cost of living is still biting. I think some of the fundamentals that underpin the economic recovery are going quite well in the States, but people aren't really feeling that. When you are paying substantially more for your you know, fast food or for your groceries, stats in the paper telling you not to believe your lying eyes don't really cut the mustard. So it's going to be very, very tough. But I think that, you know, David Plouffe called people panicking about the polls in December 2011 bedwetters. And I think there's some bedwetting going on now. At the same time, the threat of a Trump presidency is so severe. I think people can be uh, allowed an accident or two. It's
3: not just a threat of the presidency, it's it's the circumstances in which it might happen. He's under multiple criminal trials. He could be found guilty, could even be put in prison and at the same time still be elected president, at which point you get all sorts of extraordinary constitutional ramifications
1: from that. It's It's the biggest threat to the republic in 150 years and has implications for the whole world. It, the stakes are incredibly high. While the polls I think are probably uh, overselling the likelihood of a Trump win, the consequences are so severe that I, I completely understand why everyone's getting a bit panicked. I am too.
2: Olivia, let me let me turn to to you. When you look at Labour's foreign policy positions, they track very very Closely to sort of what the Tories are are doing. Do you think if there is a change of government and if there is a Labour administration, we'll see a continuation of that style of foreign policy, or could you imagine Labour maybe shifting their stance on foreign policy?
0: It's a good question, and I agree. I think there are some areas where they use uh, remarkably similar language. So if you look at China, for example. The UK government currently has this, everybody in government likes these three word strategies. The UK government uses protect, align, engage to talk about China and the Labour Party uses compete, cooperate and challenge. And in substance, they're, they're very similar. Basically, we're trying to have it both ways with this country that represents a strategic challenge to us that is massively influential, will be through the next century. We don't have a lot of influence over it and we're trying to think about areas where we can engage it and areas where we need to kind of protect ourselves and our national assets from it. But the the language is very similar, even on things where there were some cleavages between Labour and the Tories in the past. So, for example, this government talks about an Indo-Pacific tilt, this idea of a stronger military and diplomatic presence for the UK in the Indo-Pacific. For a while, there were some Labour voices who were really sceptical of that, who saw that as a bit of a post-Brexit attempt to be buccaneering and rule the waves. But now Shadow Defence Secretary John Healy is much more on board with this idea of having a presence in the Indo-Pacific. Even on things like Ukraine, obviously there's a remarkable political consensus and public consensus in the UK. On issues like international development, now that Andrew Mitchell is back in the FCDO, there was a new development white paper. A lot of the language you hear coming out of government is relatively similar to the type of language you hear from Lisa and Andy on this. To answer your question, where might there actually be some differences? I think Europe is the, is the interesting one. Of course, there's distinctions in terms of Labour's ambitions to find a better economic trading relationship with Europe. But I think an interesting long-term issue to look at is our geopolitical relationship with the European Union, so our relationship with them on foreign and security policy. The Brexit settlement didn't allow for much structured cooperation on foreign policy between the UK and the EU, but Ukraine has really underlined the necessity of that. And I think over the long term, picking up on this theme of the the potential of a Trump victory means the potential of an America much less engaged in European security. Even if Trump doesn't win, There's signs that long term, the US really wants to focus more on China and less on European security. A Labour government might seek more structured foreign policy and security cooperation with Europe and with the EU. And just on that, in terms of
2: trying to connect more with Europe or reconnect with with Europe, when you're not going to rejoin the the single market or or the customs union, and I know we have the TCE, a bit of renegotiation coming up. That's quite a narrow sphere that can be renegotiated. How meaningful will a reconnection be with Europe other than the sort of the optics?
0: Yeah, I think it's true that there's quite a lot of hopefulness about if we're just a bit friendlier and we have better diplomatic relations, that will somehow shift the fundamentals of the relationship that we have settled on. But I think there are some interesting long-term possibilities here. The Labour Party have said that they hope they might win a decade in power. So thinking in decade terms instead of immediately, the EU is also going to face a lot of questions over the next 10 years, whether Ukraine accedes to the European Union, whether countries in the Western Balkans do. And that opens up these questions about the whole structure of the EU.
2: So do you think there could be a sort of an outer ring of kind of pseudo membership with, let's say, Ukraine and and maybe Britain could
0: slip in? Could back slip in there. Into this little... I think it's a possibility, right? And it's one that we should be realistic about, because those discussions about the idea of an outer ring to the European Union, or some people use the phrase concentric circles, or two speed Europe, or different levels of European Union membership. Those conversations are not centered on the UK, the European Commission, the EU has a lot of other challenges that it's thinking about. But Over the long term, I think there could be a place for the UK in that conversation.
3: How much do you think the EU itself, putting Britain aside is under threat from those other challenges of thinking about the election of uh, Giorgio Maloney in Italy, Gert Wilders topping the polls in the Netherlands recently, Le Pen potentially a a winner in in the next French presidential election. There's a rise of the the populist or far right, whatever you want to call it, in Europe, uh, who are instinctively much more nationalist and uh, even if they don't want to leave the EU, much more sceptical about the EU. How does that change the way the organisation can function over the next few years?
0: This is a very interesting question and it poses a lot of dilemmas for the UK's relationship with European states and the European Union too. I think there are also counters to that narrative. So Poland's election recently, mm. a lot of people feared that there would be a populist victory and actually much more mainstream party won.
3: And Spain as well, the far-right party fell backwards as well. Yeah,
0: Absolutely, and I think some of the Right-wing parties that you see in Europe, there's a bit of a distinction between the ways they interact with the European Union. Mm. Some of them are quite transactional about it. Georgia Maloney is an interesting one because she hasn't been that much of a troublemaker on Ukraine, whereas Orbán is very different. So, I think this idea of the rise of right-wing populist parties in Europe is going to pose very difficult questions for the European Union. But I think they're all quite different, and some of them had these quite strategic relationships with the European Union. So I don't think all of them are straightforwardly anti-EU, but it certainly makes EU unity on big foreign policy issues really difficult. We're already seeing the 50 billion euro commitment Mm. that was recently made to Ukraine. Discussions over that are stalling because of a lack of agreement in the European Union, basically, not just from right-wing populists, but also from Germany over
3: And they've got spending. into a mess over there. They've got into budget. a mess, yes. Yeah, exactly.
0: Um,
3: so, you know, you could have a position where the Ukraine can't get their money from Congress, they can't get their money from Europe. It starts to look like they're in perhaps a lot worse of a position, the Ukrainians, than it, we may have thought a year ago or, or six months ago. Do you think there is a plausible chance that they're actually going to lose now? Uh, or are we, or is it more the risk is just a really permanent frozen conflict?
0: I do think the risk of a frozen conflict is very high. To bring it back to the UK's role, there's been a lot of narratives since Brexit that the UK has completely lost its standing in the world, going to the dogs, no influence on foreign affairs at all. I think... There are areas where the UK has had an outsized influence on foreign policy and Ukraine is one of them. There is a reasonable claim that some of our actions had a galvanizing effect and could still, especially at this time where we're seeing wobbles in the US, waivers in Europe. Like I said, even if Trump doesn't win, I think there are long term questions about how long the US is going to stay committed mm. to this conflict. So, so there is potentially a leadership role for the UK in European security. Matthew,
2: I want to turn our attention to some of the challenges that an incoming Labour government could could face. And we've had a taste of that with Labour and opposition, particularly over the very, very deep divisions over this conflict in in Israel with with Hamas. Lots of MPs have said to me that this is actually the issue where they've had more engagement from their constituents, even through the Brexit years, which I was really, really surprised. I mean, this conflict in particular is so divisive. It's it's tearing apart communities and, and friendships and, and, and neighbourhoods. And the Labour Party is a party which is very diverse in its membership and its activist based. How do you think this conflict is gonna sort of play out for the Labour Party, particularly with its engagement with communities?
1: I think it. I mean, in a way, it's a sort of a taster of what the Labour Party might face when it comes to party management under a Trump administration. That sort of conflict between what the Labour government needs to do for, for its foreign policy perspective and for the national interest versus the political views and the uh, the, the party management pressures that that come uh, in a party as diverse as as the Labour Party. The problem for Keir Starmer is that his and the Labour Party's influence over the Biden administration and the Israeli government is incredibly minimal, but they're held to account for the kind of uh, signals that they are giving across. I think that there is a, a nervousness that the Labour Party has about all of its election, uh, pre-election stances of just not wanting to take risks, of wanting to be incredibly cautious. And sometimes the absence of of a stance is a stance in itself. And so I think that as the uh, Biden administration starts to increase its pressure on Israel, I think it would make sense for the Labour Party to think about its next steps rather Mm. than just waiting to follow the Biden line.
2: And what's interesting is that there's definitely speculation from commentators in America that because of this imminent election in America and quite a lot of younger voters, more progressive voters, they're not gonna come out and, and vote for the Republicans, but they might not come out and vote for Biden. Do you think that sort of pressure is going to maybe expedite Biden, maybe changing his position, and then that will make Keir Starmer have to change his position? And will that make Keir Starmer look a bit weaker rather than stronger?
1: Well, quite. And that's why I think that Uh, Labour needs to be thinking about its next steps. The next US election is not going to be a traditional campaign where you seek to persuade and bring over swing voters. The number of swing voters in an American election is now tiny this is a battle of mobilization between two tribes and if biden can mobilize his voters he can win and if he doesn't mobilize his voters then he won't win one of the things that motivates particularly young people are these kind of values identity driven who are we uh, notions and i think the administration is is coming under more and more pressure from the way in which the polls are showing that sense but also from within the administration the number of uh, staff members who are signing open letters and using the their version of the civil service uh, uh, channels of uh, to to make protests hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of administration staff people who work for joe biden signing statements saying putting pressure on israel to end this uh, bombardment and so I think that that will generate more pressure within the Biden administration to move, and that will flow out to other countries in the American alliance. And I think it would make sense for Keir Starmer to be ready, if not ahead of that.
3: On that point, is there more scope for politicians to link up foreign and domestic politics because at the moment they're sort of very much seen as different spheres and reported in very different ways but if you look at something like immigration which has been dominated the news this week you know, the reason there's been such a surge of immigration into europe is because of conflict in the middle east conflict in north africa famine in, in in east africa but yet that join up never seems to be made it feels like there's an argument that is missing there
1: well i mean look voters care about the cost of living crisis and the NHS crisis Mm. more than anything else, uh, the 38 degrees polling that we've done, including MRP polling, constituency by constituency across the country. People care about those two things. However, there are issues like climate change, like immigration, uh, like uh, big foreign policy moments like Ukraine and, and what's happening in Israel and Gaza that speaks to our leaders' values and the context in which people think about and hear about this is what we're going to do on the NHS, this is how we're going to run the economy, are heard through the prism of how people perceive the values of uh, party leaders. And so it isn't just about, do we support a ceasefire versus a humanitarian pause? I don't think most people in the country really kind of understand the, the nuance uh, there. But what the signal that party leaders are sending is, we're not going to take a clear and unambiguous stance in favour of this bombing stopping. And that will affect how people perceive that person's values. And so I think foreign policy is really important, not in the sense that people are going to vote on, you know, this is the Labour Party's policy on this set or the other, but on the perception of the party leader's values.
2: And Olivia, I was quite struck by Jack Straw's real pushback against this phrase, ethical foreign policy what do you think about that concept i mean from what jack straw said he felt that that was quite a naive concept what, what do you think is it possible to have a more progressive foreign policy or do you have to be sort of realistic and just face up to the to the brutalities of of the world
0: it's a difficult one because i think as jack straw was saying the problem with foreign policy is you don't control what the other actors do and if you're a country like the uk You're not a great power. You don't make the weather. So you are often forced to be somewhat inconsistent because you are looking at what you actually have the ability to influence and do in the world and you're often reacting to crises and to events. That's not to say that you can't have a long-term strategy and that you can't in some ways seek to enact or represent certain values in the world. But I think this idea of doing this... It's quite vexed because it really depends what we mean by ethical foreign policy. This country was involved in two massive nation building exercises, Iraq and Afghanistan, that were really troubled, to say the least. And we are also in a position where, as Matthew was saying, the next government is very likely to be focusing on kitchen table issues, public services, cost of living, with very, very limited fiscal space. So I think a I think this is a Rory Stewart quote. He said, you don't have the moral obligation to do what you cannot do. So we have to be realistic about what we actually have the power to do in the world. And our experiences of being involved in Iraq and Afghanistan have really underlined that, I think. Having said that, there are ways that ethics can inform your foreign policy and your actions in the world. One issue I would pick up on there is climate. The UK has a genuine incredible claim to have been a leader on that issue. And it also has the public consensus and some public support at home for that position internationally. Action on climate change is not universally popular, but it's there's surprising consensus on it in the UK compared with other countries. And development is another area where the UK has traditionally mm. played a leadership role, partially by very consistently spending 0.7% of gross national income on development, and partially by very consistently focusing on extreme poverty not making development overly political. So I think those are kind of a couple of areas where the Labour Party might seek to recapture leadership when they're in power and where ethics can inform what you do. I also think there's something to seeking to be consistent in your domestic positions and in your advocacy internationally. So actions like the Rwanda plan, for example, The UK sort of flirting with the idea of leaving the European Court of Human Rights or risking returning refugees to countries of origin where they're at risk of persecution kind of undermines the message when the UK in other countries Mm. is sort of trying to stop other countries from doing that. Dipping out of the rule of law when it suits you, for example, doesn't exactly send a great message.
3: We've we've talked quite a lot today about the kind of known knowns, uh, sort of Ukraine and and Trump and uh, and Israel Gaza and this of challenges that we know about. What's coming round the corner that we're perhaps not talking about yet in in sort of mainstream p- British political discussion? What are the big foreign policy challenges that Starmer might face in 2025, 26?
0: I think there's a few things. We've talked about some of the immediate questions that a Labour government might face on Ukraine, on Europe, on development spending, on the climate crisis. Something that often gets referred to in foreign policy discussions, but rather obliquely, is risks in the Indo-Pacific, so particularly the risk that China might invade Taiwan. Would the US put pressure on Europe to impose sanctions on China? What might that mean for our very deep economic entanglements with China? What would we do? What role should the UK play? So I mentioned that the UK government has been pursuing something of a tilt, whatever tilt means to the Indo-Pacific, but more of a diplomatic and military presence in the Indo-Pacific has started to think more about what its response to China is. But I'm not sure we've really clearly defined our interests in that region and what we would actually do if that happened. So I think that's the really big game changer that mm. could occur. Sort of like
3: Russia, Ukraine, but times 10 in terms of the consequences for the economy and so on.
0: Absolutely. Aside from the human consequences of that invasion, Taiwan is a massive producer of sophisticated semiconductors, which are one of the core components of the global economy. Um, so that is a huge, that's your kind of, well, I was going to say black swan, it's but not, I don't. We can see it, so it's not we can really black. Yeah.
2: Well, we've come to the end of our time. What really a
3: f- cheery
0: end.
2: Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we're well, all you know, things. Could, things could
0: go right. Uh, yeah, that, might Listen, that could <laughs> be the new phrase. For
2: this, so the things could only really get better. Things could go right. It's to
3: Charlotte's quote from last week, which I know we're inching towards something less bleak as Labour's <laughs> to be Labour's. Uh, um, well,
2: Olivia and Matthew, thank you for coming and sprinkling your rays of sunshine <laughs> upon <laughs> us. HEEEH! <laughs>
3: So what really struck me about that discussion, especially at the end is, you know, we've spent, we've spent lots of episodes talking about how Labour going to deal with the health system, the economy, how they're going to get some growth. And it could just all be completely sideswiped by some massive event like China invading Taiwan or President Trump just absolutely exploding the US economy or something. It's just if I, I was I was already depressed about Labour's <laughs> prospects and now I'm really, really depressed. We should get this sponsored by Prozac or something
2: <laughs> like that. That's the way the parrot is um, it. <laughs> No I I completely completely agree what lies ahead really is is terrifying particularly if the big orange one makes um, Yeah
3: and, and and so something like China you'd, you know, it, it's a possibility that needs to be considered but you you'd very much hope that doesn't happen Trump feels like a really Really big possibility, you know. You know whether whether it's as high as fifty fifty. I'm not sure, but certainly a really significant chance of that happening. And I think Biden's age is really, really playing against him now. Uh, if you look at the polling in the states, so you know, it, it is very plausible that President Trump will be will have a President Trump round two, and the fact that it would happen so soon after. Yeah, you know, the the best guess is that is that the election will be sort of late October here, could even be after the American election. Yeah, you know, he's going to come Starmer winds. He's going to come straight into Trump being you know, potentially elected a week or two later. So it's going to be something that is a big part of his first 100 days. You always want to control your first 100 days and have a set of announcements uh, that you make and sort of set your stall. But it could end up being dominated by the situation in America and not even giving him the opportunity to have that honeymoon.
2: See, that's why if I'm Rishi Sunak, I'm not going in me. I'm going to wait till after the yeah. American election to put as much pressure on Keir Starmer as possible because the election of Donald Trump is going to completely have an effect on our election campaign. Mm. And, you know, look, it could mobilise a lot of progressives to to come out and vote for Keir Starmer, even if they don't love everything about him. But it could sort of galvanise the right in this country. As well. I actually
3: think it, it suggests he will have the election just before the American election, because I don't think they, the Conservatives will want the kind of wild card of a potential Trump win in our election campaign either. I don't think it actually helps anybody because it's so hard to plan for. So I think it would be just before, but then that means you're walking into office as you know, and I don't think it'll be resolved quickly the American election. Either way, it's gonna be another one where there's months of constitutional wrangling. So it's not gonna be a straightforward result either. And is gonna be being asked questions, you know, do you think Trump is right to argue this state? It's gonna be it's just gonna make such a mess mm. of everything.
2: See, I disagree, I think it'd be after, I think it would be after. But look, our domestic politics has been so batshit and so pauper, mm. in a way we haven't had to take a step back and look at geopolitics, but actually the reality is, in quite a kind of stealthy way, geopolitics are going to play a really important um, and impact this goes on the to selection. the sort of
3: point that I was trying to get uh, you know talk to Matthew about this sort of uh, the, the link between domestic and, and and international because you know what uh, NHS is sort of one, one issue that's very big on people's minds, but if you look at the other big three cost of living which is driven by sort of global economy primarily uh, climate change which is a global problem and immigration which has been kicked to much higher levels by in uh, a, a very unstable world they are all effectively geopolitical problems mm-hmm. and unless you start to think about them in those terms they're only going to get worse even if you do they might get worse so you have to start linking totally. this up in the electorate's mind i think
2: and even if you think you don't care about Wars in far-flung places or floods. All of this stuff is joined up and our politics is incredibly bad at joining up the dots.
3: Well... Anyway, the weight of the world. (laughs) Happy Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
2: thank you for listening. Remember, if you're not a member, you can subscribe to our Substack for ad free episodes released a whole day early. If you've got any thoughts or questions, do let us know. You can tweet at the power test or email pod at thepowertest.co.uk.
3: And join us next week for the final episode of this second series of The Power Test. We will see you then.